Coffee shop conversation number three, very special number, the number three. And also we're accompanied by two people off camera um, who may be like ghosts or angels asking questions at different times. They'll be disembodied voices, but no less loved because of that. Thank you. You're welcome. We are very pleased to be here. Just a second, this is important. I tell you that freshly grated nutmeg is unique. The reason I'm moving so carefully is everything is so precariously set up here. So I will look like the Sphinx today for most of today's interview. Because I've got a camera to my left and a sound recorder in front of me and something else is happening somewhere else. Anyway, you, I believe, were going to ask a question which we're both going to discuss which is actually the hangover from the last coffee shop conversation, number two. Yes, so the question that we had the cliffhanger ending of the last conversation was, what makes a good student? So. Yes, um, there is an immense amount of internet traffic on what makes good teachers, and and it's become more common, I think. Not that it was ever not uncommon. Yes. Um, but it's, it's fashionable to be quite critical of teachers these days. But I want to reverse that fashion, or at least want to change the fashion. I want to be critical of students. I think to be a good student, you have to leave your conceptual schema at the front door. And so one thing that we say is, on a workshop, for example, which is normally our most concentrated learning setup. We say something like, look, if you find your mind saying, if you hear the little voice in your head saying, I know that, you can be certain that learning has momentarily stopped completely. Mm. And it's extremely common for people to have an intense internal dialogue while the teacher is trying to impart some knowledge or some understanding to them, which is a critical dialogue or, in fact, the worst form of it, in my experience, is when... The, the student has their own conceptual schema and they're saying, no, no, it's not like that, it's, uh, it's actually something quite different and, and that's what I'm thinking about now. Mm-hmm. And all you feel as, any, as a student is a reaction in the body to what the teacher is saying and then the whole psychosocial dynamic mm-hmm. is created from that. So for me personally, and this is, and again, like all of these little tips or bits of advice we give during these conversations, this is just what has worked for me personally, and I hope you're going to share with what what's worked for you um, personally, because you, in my view, are an excellent student, and I hope I'm still yeah. a, a good student too. We're still keeping on learning all the time, at least trying to. But what I do is I drop my awareness. If I ever hear a voice like that, I'll drop the awareness into my tummy, breathe in, but no one ever notices me doing this, then let the tummy relax completely, and the sheer act of moving your awareness into your tummy and feeling the breath come in and go out, immediately the mind is clear. Immediately there is no dialogue. Once again you're open. And the openness is instant. I've, I've had so many people write to me, not exactly on this subject, but it's a related sort of thing, and say, I just don't know how to be clear. I don't know how to stop that voice in the head, the, the critical voice or the 
I don't know, grief-laden voice, whatever voice you're afflicted with, everyone's got one. But for me personally, dropping the awareness into the tummy literally interrupts that process, and it's, and it's a habit now. I've done it the, the required 10,000 times, so I actually normally, not always, as you might recall from a recent example, but normally have the presence of mind to drop the awareness into the tummy, although on that occasion I didn't. <laughs> I'll pick up a little bit from there. Please. So, especially with the word open, it is, a, from my perspective, a, a prerequisite. But I remember very early on studying with you, my previous teacher, Chris mentioned that um, that you saw that I was open. And I heard him say, I was like, what does that mean? And it was I can understand these people with their, their questions in this regard. Um, what does it mean? And you've already mentioned the ability to put aside one's framework for a moment. Um, I think it's very important to remember that you're there to learn, not to kind of... Do a comparative thing yeah, of what you know versus... the argumentation thing. Like You're not there to be completely subservient, um, of course, but you do need to kind of give up some of your own opinions about things, or at least put them aside, be willing to just move them for a moment and see I mean if you have selected a person to be a teacher hopefully you've considered it and actually considered it um, deeply you go okay um, this person they seem to be further along than I they seem to know what I would like to have so maybe maybe they are correct about a number of things that I'm misled about and if I can just put aside a few of my own kind of opinions about various topics and etc then maybe maybe something will occur and that happened for me I had a lot of the best learning experiences where <clears throat> was when a deeply held belief about something got completely burnt up I just it's not very nice but you see the, the error of your ways so to speak no in fact it's <laughs> horrible <laughs> um, yeah you have to remember that you're there to learn and it has to have it has to be sincere. I mean, a lot of people will go in and they want to extract information, like a specific topic. Mm. I mean, that's more of a, you go to a workshop for that. But if you're going into actual mentoring, apprentice, whatever you want to call it, this this type of thing, you have to be willing to take it whole. All of it. And set aside it for a bit. And for me, each time, so I've had three teachers, it was interesting in that. I experienced the whole flavor of the the teacher and then I had a period where I would I would reintegrate that into for myself because the worst thing is if you turn into your teacher you don't want that Mm-mm. it shouldn't occur like that it should be that you kind of enter into their realm fully for a while <clears throat> and then come back and assimilate that and for me having done that three times or in the process of three it's a very each time it happened allowed me to work with the next teacher mm. more deeply and mm. it was a very profound thing for me to have that. I don't think, I've been thinking about this a bit, I don't think I could have actually had <coughs> the same experience if I'd started with you as a first teacher. Or oh God, we, 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 with my that would have been teacher. a disaster. Yeah, so this is very interesting. I think for me these mentoring, whatever they're called, apprenticeship style things are 
a very missing link, especially in physical body, the type of stuff that mm. we do. Mm. It's really the best way to learn for my mind, at least. So I think <clears throat> there's other things involved in this, but I think that's a nice flavor of what's needed. It's a good place to start. And really, what what I talked about briefly and what Dave has spoken about just now are really two ends of a continuum because what I'm talking about, I was thinking more about um, a, a workshop that I taught recently where someone had come to that workshop with a very, very strong set of ideas about how things should be done in the stretching sense. Um, she's a Pilates teacher and had become like many Pilates teachers, had become flexible as a child, as a dancer. And so she had a completely different perspective on stretching than the one that we were presenting at the workshop. And so for her, it was it was actually quite difficult and it was experienced as a kind of a zzzt, this does not compute kind of sensation in the body. But really, that's as a, the reason I mention continuum is when you're talking about taking on a teaching whole, you are going to get exactly the same kind of internal Definitely. reaction, well, as, as have I. And it can be very unpleasant. In fact, really, it needs to be unpleasant. And I think it's why it needs to be long-term as well, because if you turn up at a workshop and yeah. someone says something you don't like and you don't know them very well, it's not a... it just is... And it's an easy thing to say... useful and it can be forgotten, but yeah. if you're really working with someone over the long term you get to, you will have these things pop up if it's a proper, mm. you don't want to just go to someone who tells you what you already know, you want to go to someone who... Well, let's just, let's just stop there for someone. a second. If you go to someone who will tell you what you already know, by definition, no learning is possible mm -hmm. there. Learning means to have your constructs challenged. Mm. It cannot not feel uncomfortable. Now, it can be uncomfortable at a purely intellectual level, that's the least offensive form of uncomfortableness or it can be at a really deep psychological, spiritual, body level. They're the ones which, have, well, at least in my case, affect much more profoundly. I mean, ideas are like, as we've said many times, ideas are like assholes. everyone's got them. What we want to know is what makes this idea more valuable than another idea and that's, you know, that's the basic task of philosophy is to talk about those things cogently. But what we're talking about now is a much deeper than that. Which is why it has to be long as well, because you have to do day after day, yeah. week after week, training and years. It's this thing Craig and I talked a little bit about, instead of talking about your training for the next, this period, it's of like months or weeks, as we kind of do. Mm. It's talking about the next decade's training, mm. that type of period. So I was lucky in that all of the kind of teaching periods I had of this nature were around six or seven years mm. each week multiple times formal classes coffee shop conversations thing. yeah it's the whole yeah you enter into the teacher's realm and experience it and you are trying to uh, remain open but not not in a subservient way. It's a very well, interesting dynamic that the Western student can't take the full Eastern kind of, you completely obey and why should they in a way? It's this weird thing but you can't also hold back and go and not enter in. So it's this halfway between 
those points and at some periods it'll be slightly more you observing and tinkering with that on your own and other times it will be in your face you need to accept this this is different than you believe i mean this is one of the problems with spiritual work generally and why most um most movements which then get labeled as cults crash and burn is because you're playing this very fine line between yes you have to accept that the teacher is going to say things to you that you don't like and the question then is do you actually take them on or not but the trouble is that's the potential for abuse there is very high i know and if you think about all the, the different examples legion all the different cults that have been around for the last 20 or 30 years in fact almost all of them are crashed and burned on one of the following axes sex abuse of sex abuse of power or abuse of money those three things they're the three biggies one of the things that i think that's really useful about the work that we do is that none of those things are involved that's very helpful but for someone who's listening to this who is contemplating working with a teacher in my opinion those three questions need to be asked and answered hmm. what do you think it's interesting i think <clears throat> uh yes it's an interesting interesting dynamic it's always um how should i put it it's actually hard for me to talk about poor teachers because i was so lucky with my teachers i didn't get into a circumstance of that nature but obviously it happens very mm. regularly um i would say what i did each time <clears throat> is a lot of ground research on my own first before i actually entered into to it at all i looked around a lot and i had the general theoretical underpinnings down pat and this allowed me to to weed out certain pathways to go down in terms of study um and As once i had once i had one good teacher excellent teacher it's very easy to pick another and see either way so you really i don't know if you set yourself up with the first interaction I mean if you had a bad teacher first off it could put you back in terms of your ability to actually trust someone another time so <clears throat> there's a lot of interesting it's it's human interaction it's a, it's a very uh close relationship if you do an apprentice style thing because you mm. see this person all the time and we'll have lots of the other things that relationships of mm. close proximity have so <clears throat> but you get the best benefits from it so i guess it's volatile and that it can go very good or very bad do you remember my razor blade metaphor <laughs> i do yeah All right do either of you have any questions about what we've been talking about marvel does i can see oh just uh expanding on some of the concepts that you're talking about taking on the the teaching whole mm-hmm. um and you were just talking about the weeding out yeah. by by researching beforehand yeah. maybe you talk a little bit more about um some of the things you've thought about when when looking for a good teacher uh, or knowing whether yeah. one of the teachers would be better than another and not you know like Craig's talked about the fact that he you know spent a, a, a lot 10 years almost of doing something some way and then yeah. come across something that's changed uh, the way that he's thought about that not that any of the experiences would be in any way bad but maybe saving time and finding yeah uh, the right part I, yeah okay. obviously research yeah 
So for me, it was a very much an observational research for a long period of time when I was younger. <clears throat> Spending an inordinate amount of time looking at uh, books and conversations on forums. It's actually quite humorous. I spent a very large amount of time on forums when I was late teens, early 20s. And it has a lot of pitfalls because there's a lot of poor quality information and all the other hoo-ha on that. But through it, through looking at it enough, you could actually tell almost like a Socratic dialogue. Sometimes people who actually knew something would... You could see in the the logic that they explain something, and we're just talking about like physical training, martial arts type stuff here. They they were very coherent and very. You can tell like if you if you see enough of these interactions, this person obviously is talking from experience. They know what they're doing. It's it's a flavor of their their discourse, this type of thing. So I actually trained myself over a number of years to be able to sift very quickly through low quality information mm. and then I rejected it kind of because I kept as with forms you see the same thing repeating itself endlessly and endlessly so I'd had enough but it was a very useful experience doing that Can I just interrupt yeah. there and say that sometimes when one is looking for something and especially the answer to the biggest question of all which is what do you want most people, if you ask them what do they want, they cannot answer really cogently or in any any way fully. But sometimes, not just sometimes, I think that most of the time knowing what you don't want, being clear about what you don't want is, is extremely helpful. Yeah. I've definitely relied on that. Yeah, so I weeded out a lot of things that way and then it was almost just, so looking back, it was a number of lifetimes ago almost, but the first time I just kind of made a... I weeded out a lot of people and then I made a, because at the ANU you could go along and market day and talk to everyone and I liked very much, it was just, it was an intuitive thing mm. with my, with Chris, my first teacher, it's just obviously was different than all the other people I well, Can you to. speak for a second, when, when people say intuitive, when I was a, a philosopher, we would la label the use of the word intuitive as the word that you use when you don't know how to explain it <laughs> logically, or, logically or rationally. And it was actually a pejorative term, but, but as you know in my work, which was much of it was about the limits of the scientific method as much yep. as anything else, I realised in fact that that was actually a, limiting, a limit of the questioning framework. It wasn't a limit of the experience of life. And for, for me... Intuitive is what feels right in the body. Of course, you have to have some, you have to be in tune with what's going yes. on in your body to, I would say, a deep degree before that really is persuasive. But most people, even people who we might negatively label as being deeply asleep, will say things like, oh, I've interacted with that guy. The absolute very first contact with that person, I just knew this person wasn't the right person to me. That there's nothing asleep about that. That is the body reacting by itself. That is a, a clear direction. It's interesting as well. And the combination, I mean, in Canberra it was pretty easy to spot this because most people are of one flavour, more mm. or less. And so with you and with Chris, something very different. People who are doing their own thing, very intelligent, moved very, very well. The movement was... Yeah, and that combination... and of 
seeing and meeting the person and there's a there's a coherence to the person you read what they've written and you understand it and it, it makes sense based on all your other research and then you go along and try and sure enough you get something positive from the in the training and then it happens mm. so it's not like you just have to jump blind really um, and you can always say no there's something else that I find interesting I mean, you, you, you can get to a point in anything where you say you know what this isn't working for me for whatever reason now it may be a statement of your own limitations too it certainly was in my case with one teacher mm. so there we go the complex interaction of trying to find a teacher if you're a student and be a good student being a good student Hmm. It's interesting. Well, it's important. If if the work that you're doing with a teacher has any deep meaning for you at all, the relationship is going to be one of the most important relationships of your life. This is not something casual. Hmm. And so we need to be... Well, firstly, we need to be awake within it so that if we find ourselves pivoting and wanting to bail or whatever at some point that you're clear about why you're doing it. And on the other hand, if you feel that you have been exposed to something useful and valuable and, and immensely important to you, you redouble your efforts to try mm. and understand it and to feel it. No different to anything else. <laughs> Actually, there's one last point I make in all of my... If there's just not mentioned is that it has to be funny. There has to be humour involved in it. This is not the name of the rose. It's not that, like, especially this era and especially working with this stuff. It's too serious to take seriously. You have to well, what, joke with it. Wasn't it, wasn't it on the last conversation you said something like, if it wasn't you, you could have said it, um, some recent study, I mean, who, who does these no, studies? That a recent one. study where, you know, adults laugh about four times a day um, and children laugh, you know, 400 plus. Well, I mean, you know what our relationship is like. If it's not funny, I'm just not interested. Yeah, it's not that you have to be funny all the time but there has to be humor involved yeah. and laughter involved and the whole spectrum of human emotions involved but i think it's a good sign if you enter into it this process and you find yourself that dreaded word happier happier and also <laughs> laugh, laughing at yourself i mean this work yes, is way too seriously yourself. to be serious about it i remember one teacher i was working with he <laughs> fuck this makes me laugh so much he said, what could be more boring than a room full of meditators? He said, they're it's all so serious. I thought, oh, well, with the groups that I know, yeah, that, that's true. And then he said, this is really beautiful, he said, well, isn't enlightenment supposed to make you lighter? I thought, well, yeah. Even on a more mundane level, the stretching, the moving of the patterns within oneself, it's, it feels good. It's you, funny. You get more of a spontaneous reaction to things creeping back in and for me I have a daughter yeah. so I can see what and we've been deliberate in trying not to have her learn certain ways of this society um, and she laughs and is spontaneous at a very high degree so in a way she is teaching me how to go back to that so definitely definitely hmm. how's the ballistic stretching going homeboy still alive <laughs> I'm still alive um, 
The completely unexpected aspect of ballistic stretching for me, and I, Fred and I are on about day, I don't know, 35 or 30 something out of the 45 days. September 1 is when it ends, so you can do the maths. I can't remember. I don't even know what day it is, but I know it's a Saturday. Only because you said you were coming over here today. <laughs> you know, no idea what it is? 20 something. What date? First, see, see, we're four people who don't know what day it is. Now, I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Personally, I think it's an excellent thing. Okay, so we're about, let's say we're about day 35, something, something like that. What has been absolutely stunning as an experience is the immense fatigue that I have felt as a result of doing it's one hour of ballistic stretching in the morning. I, I, Interesting. Look... Um, I, I trained as a martial artist, as you know, as a live-in student in a martial arts dojo in Japan for the first 14 or 15 months of my mm-hmm. stay there. Um, and we did, it was overall four or five hours a day training, and that did not leave me feeling anything like this. However, I'm also a lot older now too, so that's yeah. part of it, but Fred is also feeling the same level of fatigue, and he is chock block full of beans, 30-year-old guy who's been doing gymnastic strength training for nearly 10 years. Mm. So, I mean, he, you would think that it would not affect him in the same way, but that's simply not the case. Now, he has, he's going extremely well with Emmett's head-to-toe thing. He um, is bouncing his head off his fist, yeah. off his foot, um, and, you know, in the first set each day. But what I found, though, is that the, the Emmett head-to-toe, and thank you, Emmett, if you're watching this, I, I plan on cursing you in a nice way. The, the head-to-toe thing, that's where I've made the least progress. But I had a flash of insight um, a few days ago, and I realised that my hamstrings are very strong from all the things that I've mm. done in the past. In particular, I used to, do, used to do Bulgarian deadlifts, for example, with 140 kilograms, and that was a set of five. That was really easy to do. Mm. And so the hamstrings, I think, in my case, uh, the, the fascia component is, is high and that fascia is very tough anyway. You know, we've done this, this pulling the, the fascia off the forearm thing. Mine, that's it. So my fascia is tight, whereas his fascia, when he pulls it off his forearm, it goes Whoop, like this. Just, just demonstrate that. I don't know that we can see that, but maybe you might want to hold it up to that camera. But you can see that it comes off. There's, there's very little tension in it. Springs back immediately, so it's really healthy and everything, but, but compared to my kind of tension, it's completely different. And so what I did was I got our heaviest kettlebell, which is 28 kilograms, mm-hmm. and I stood between two benches, um, and I did the standing forward bend with absolutely straight legs, and I just did sets of 108. Interesting. <laughs> um, and the muscle soreness was no more than the delayed onset muscle soreness from doing the original ballistics, which in around day 10 or day 11 was quite extreme. Mm. But we, I worked through that and so did Fred. But I got way further down towards head towards the foot using a 28 kilogram kettlebell than the, hunt, the thousands, well, more than 10,000 repetitions I've done mm-hmm. since we started this challenge. So. The insight that I'm going to share here is that for some of you, for some people, um, the intensity, the, 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 you can't get, in my opinion, the, the, the length and duration of pull on the fascia just by bouncing, even if you're using the whole of your body's weight, as Fred and I have been doing. So when we're doing the one-legged ones, for example, we are swinging our whole body down and also pulling at the same time as using a momentum that is nothing like using a 28-kilogram kettlebell even though we're doing both legs. The actual pull, 
that the experience of the line of force in the hamstrings and particularly right up underneath the, the glute where that short-headed biceps femoris attaches to the thigh, that's the part in my body that is really tight. And the, the weighted stretching, also done ballistically by the way, not just hanging there, but ballistics, but relatively short, small amplitude, one or two inches only. Yeah. Whereas when we're doing whole body, it's more like a foot or even 18 inches or two feet of movement. That's the first thing. The second thing is that I've found my pancakes coming back, which just feels absolutely fantastic. I got my body below 30 degrees from the floor with a perfectly straight back the other day. And that was after after a session too. And normally my body tightens up pretty quickly after a session. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say the two things that I've noticed that that one was surprising, that is the fatigue aspect. Um... But, but I have been doing about an hour a day, roughly, first thing in the morning. And the second thing yeah. is the the fact that my earlier patterns of flexibility are coming back rapidly. Mm. So one, I'll mention one which will make sense to you because you've seen me do this pose, but with a flat bolster, the flat bolsters are about this thick. You know, when you sit in a bolster, they mm-hmm. decrease in height. Um, I can do front splits over those with perfectly straight legs now and have my whole body resting on the bolster. Mm anytime so that is a major improvement for me and also too we don't normally think about front splits this way but if you square your hips up and i've got a rotary kind of movement where you're bringing the back legs hip in when you're on the bolster to stretch the hip flexors but if you then hold your body perfectly straight and go down towards the front leg there's no cheating in that movement because Mm. the hip flexors are holding the lower back in in extension i liked that version you did on me in melbourne the seat belt over the top Embracing, so you yes. can do the diagonal one. It's, it's an improvement on the one we used to do of bracing on the. Pulse. I agree, I agree, I agree. Well, this I'm doing. I'm talking about doing this solo, but the diagonal movement in the hip yeah. flexors is there, and when you square up your hips in any front splits type exercise, whether it's modified front splits or full front splits, as soon as you take the hips from here to here, the outer hamstring on the front leg is loaded up, and the hip flexor is loaded up on the back leg, which of course is what pulls your hips out of alignment anyway. So look, it really is a perfect exercise. Mm. I don't. That one, in my view, doesn't seem to need any additional weight. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe because the levers are very long, or I need to think about that. But it works. In, yeah, I found in my own recent exploration that certain body parts respond well to very differing types. Well, that's where I think we're going to be able to post something that's new because Mm. traditionally ballistic stretching, well, if we talk about the way um, Craig or our our friend Mountain Hammer talks about the traditional wushu approach is they have, I think, eight or ten exercises, the Mm. the, uh, Shidapan series, and we can link to that at the end, Um, and everyone does those, and everyone does them for the same number of repetitions in the same way. But what I have found, I mean, the standing weighted uh, forward bend over straight legs, for example, that affects the the fascia in my body completely differently than doing the head to toe, the, he- mm. the Emmett's head to toe thing. And some of the, I've also, too, uh, there's, a, there's another thing that's quite interesting, and I'll just mention it briefly, and that is there's this movement, pubu, or, or drop yeah. stance. Um, I, the thing that was shocking to me is that what limited me in that pose is leg strength. Mm-hmm. Leg strength on the bent leg, the supporting leg. That's a, an absolute shocker to become aware of that. On one leg, able to get down into a decent drop stance, that's my shorter leg. Um, and as I wrote on the forums the other day, I was feeling quite wushu when I was um, mm-hmm. on, the, on the retreat recently because my body was, was nearly vertical and I was, you know, 
pretending to be wushu like, <laughs> but on the other leg, um, it's actually it's actually a lack of strength on that leg that and that, that stops me getting down. Not to mention lack of ankle flexibility, so I can't keep the weight far enough forward to put the stress in the right place. So what I've been doing instead is again using a weight to load up that stretch so that I can incline the body forward and then move the body towards that extended leg and that's stretching the right places, I can feel it. But this is the thing that's new that I wanted to mention now, is that I've been doing standing legs apart forward bend before doing that and that helps enormously. It stretches the same line. Yeah. And so I do 50 over one leg, 50 over the, and when I talk about over one leg, I've got this leg out here extended and I'll use this arm and I'll hold the outside of this foot and go towards that leg 50 times and then 50 times on the other leg and then 50 times down the middle and it's the, the down the middle one which is the closest in sensation to the mm. anyway we will write this up yeah but it's exciting and uh, i had a friend of mine professor goldfield uh, wrote to me the other day and he said i can't believe you're doing this ballistic stuff after recommending just stretching your worst parts once a week for years and i said well, we're doing something new mark it's called doing something new mm. Um, which is absolutely the hallmark of our system because our system is about tinkering. Mm -hmm. So when this idea came up, and it came from Craig originally, I think, and Emmett, pretty much at the same time, I thought, well, you know, let's try something different and see what happens. Mm. Exactly. Still yet to experiment with this. Yeah, well, I'm going to announce publicly I've committed myself to a 90-day challenge. I don't think 45 is enough for me. So I'm going 90. And listen, I'll just touch on something that you and I have spoken about before. It's said in the yoga world, this is a tantric yoga concept, but I'm sure it's the same in the rest of the spiritual world. If you want to change something in yourself then one, one lunar month is, is, a, is a good thing. But if you're serious about wanting to change something, then three lunar months, that's 90 days, is a much better thing. So I, so I can expect this fatigue for another little while. <laughs> you have access to coffee, it's not that bad. Yeah, no, that, that's right. And we do it first thing in the morning too. Um, that is unpleasant, I imagine. Well, we have to do it first thing in the morning because what we found, and I know you found the same thing with your sitting practice, unless you do it first thing in the morning, all sorts of ordinary things in life will come along and you'll simply find yourself saying, I'll get to that later, I'll get to that later, and then it's the next day. I actually think that's one of the coolest things about all these physical challenges is besides they pick, people are picking quite nice things to work on in terms of exercises, but they're just every day doing yes. something. Yeah, as Craig says, quoting the great Sheila Booth, just do it and <laughs> and no days off. No days off. And so it's, it's an interesting thing you know. for me because I've always believed that if you want to really remake some part of your body that's super tight, then doing it once a week, sieging it, mm. and expecting to be very sore for a few days after sieging that part, I mean, that's definitely worked for many, many people. And it's certainly uh, more controllable than ballistics, I think. Although I have to say, and I'm going to answer here, someone on the forums who wrote, who was quoting that amazing guy, I can't pronounce his online name, but the guy that does the side splits between chairs with 100 kilograms overhead, I can't remember, you know who I mean? Jimu Jiffy or something like that. (laughs) That's close enough. It's something like that. Um, apparently he's very critical of ballistic stretching because he says it's uncontrolled and I've just watched this guy with 100 kilograms above his head slide into side splits on two chairs which is sliding apart and I think, well, you know, that's not all that controlled either. But anyway, 
the point that I wanted to make was ballistic stretching is as controlled as you personally want it mm-hmm. to be. It can be... Um, Shuri was talking about micro-movement ballistically, so you can go to your end range of movement, and I've been doing this for years in piriformis in particular, and you're, this, if you just look at my thing, it'll be this kind of tiny pulses, so small that you can, if you're yeah. watching, it wouldn't even look like the person was moving, but that's moving. I do that when I'm doing head-to-toe, it's most definitely a nerve restriction for me. Right. It doesn't feel the least bit good to do the bounce, no. but if I kind of uncoil slowly, I can actually... It's actually, for me, you the can sensory feel it clarity being, is really yeah. interesting. You can actually feel it bending around. And being pulled tight. And being flossed, and you can feel where the restrictions are. And if you're very slow, you can just rotate it and mm-hmm. like this. And for me, I'm quite sure that my body will not respond to blasting that, mm-hmm. and so I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. But it is a restriction that I want to get rid of, so yeah. I'm going to explore my own type of protocol when I can get back into that. Okay. Um, it is an interesting movement. The head to toe is obviously quite a wind up of the sciatic pathway. Oh, to maximum. Which is intriguing. Yeah. It's yeah. cool if you can do it. Yeah. I like the fact everyone is exploring with these different protocols. I mean, I still, with my stretching currently, will do the preferences one enormous session of about three hours every 10 days or yeah. seven days. And, and then just kind of ambient motion throughout the day exactly when I teach it, or, or, or what we like call that. limbering yeah right squatting down moving whatever but and so that's not but saying anything against mm-hmm. what you've just said i want to say and the proof of the pudding to use this old cliche is in the eating your flexibility is completely different to when i first met you mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if you think about the hour a day i've been spending compared to the three hours you spend every 10 days Um, you could say in one sense that ballistic stretching on that account is actually quite inefficient but for me personally Uh, it's it's interesting it's a different quality it's a different quality and also too and we spoke about this last time we spoke is that there are two different sets of proprioceptors Mm. in the neural system running parallel to one another one is position dependent and that's the one that's affected so strongly by yoga poses and holding poses for long periods of time but the other is time and position dependent and they're separate systems both have to be trained and my argument has always been well if you're doing martial arts or some other kind of movement practice you don't need to do the time and position dependent training because your own practice will do that automatically the brain will literally take the new range of movement and incorporate it in what you're doing but if you're not doing that kind of practice then I think the ballistic stretching has some some excellent advantages to it or excellent not advantages add some excellent positive characteristics about it. I'm definitely going to test it, but it's, it is that thing about time. Yeah. I don't have time to do it at the moment. Oh, I'm making problem. time. And so basically, by the time I get to the end of this 30, well, no, 90 days, it'll be roughly 90 hours over three months. No big deal. Mm, very good. We don't need to sleep. We can sleep when we're dead, right? As we said. That's, That's what, what coffee is for. Like to me at the moment. Yeah, well, I well, the fatigue dimension ha- I, I have definitely had to do a lying meditation every afternoon or most afternoons good to, yeah it's good anyway mm. okay so that's enough on ballistics what else did you want to talk about today or do you two questions. you have any burning questions that you must offer into the ether which will become embodied in this immortalised and if you don't no problem well I guess depending on what you guys end up talking about next maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you are doing I am doing. 
doing a lot of things that we Okay, so for me, the hierarchy, as I've said probably last time and other ways, is always the awareness sensation and then these motion things. So if mm -hmm. I don't have enough time to do uh, yoga nidra or... Can I interrupt you though and just say, right, as soon as I hear you saying that, that's a, that's a very artificial distinction on, sure. on one perspective. It's, it's everyone has the same time, but I didn't have the energy. Oh, no, 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 I didn't mean that. I meant positioning awareness... And then what was the next one? Sensation. Sensation and then movement. Um, it's possible to have all of those at the same time. Yes, but very it, rare. It's extremely rare, but that's, as you know, that's what I've been working towards sure. for some time My goal now. is to incorporate all of them, but yes. my preference for training is to train in the order I mentioned, because so please, the benefits please just describe this for someone who doesn't have the experience of daily life that you have, mm -hmm. and I'm, I think I can say that now, not only because you're quite a different person to the person I met, whatever it was, 10 years ago, not just because of that, but because in my direct experience of you, the, let me take a step back and just mention something, then I'll come back and make that point. The teacher that I worked with for a long time in New Mexico had a wonderful saying that I've quoted to you many times, and he would say something like, there are many maps to buried treasure, mm -hmm. but not all maps lead to buried treasure. This is the thing. And so what I want to say here is, and then he would go on to say, it's the fruit of the practice that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. Precisely. So I'm going to say that, there's, that your practice has borne fruit. Yes. That's and the point. And so I want to ask you, what does having more awareness in daily life actually look and feel like for you? Can you describe it? Yes. Okay. Everything is much more alive and interesting, yep. very enchanted than before. Yeah. Um, You're much more inclined to laugh. Much more inclined to laugh. Yeah. You can also very easily, after it gets traction, tell who else is doing practice and not. That's interesting. I it agree. Is. And there's all these things that are very difficult to articulate and this is a bit of a, I guess, crux or problem in it, in that if you just take someone's word of this and have no, kind of, you can't see it really affecting anyone, then you won't do the practice because it's long and boring to sit there and breathe and cushion or whatever you're doing. But it's a little bit, it's even more complex than picking a good teacher is seeing these things <coughs> change but for some reason you're crazy enough to sit down and practice these things whether you start off for health or for concentration stress or relief or stress relief you start it for some reason and hopefully you get those those benefits creeping in and then you realize other <coughs> things are happening very flickering in the beginning very second guessed no Yes, no, yes, no. But then eventually, very, very clear. Um, it's interesting, it's actually been for me <clears throat> recently, like I can easily take time off all my physical stuff, I could probably give it up, no problem. It doesn't have any, it's just neutral to me. I like physical stuff, but if I don't have to do it for, or I can't do it for three months, it's, it's just like <laughs> anything. Well, can I interrupt there and say, well, I've been 
building the new house down at Greenwood Point with Olivia, I didn't do any stretching for six months. I mean, apart from the mm-hmm. limbering stuff. So, for example, when I nail a, a floor or something, I'm down in the full squat position, so I suppose, in some sense, because that's comfortable for me, in some sense that's stretching, but, but all of the things that we do in those kind of movement patterns, they're all bent limb. Yeah. Now I'm talking about, you know, say the position that, that Michael's in, where one leg's out to the side and, you know, you're actually stretching over a straight leg, which is not a daily life flexibility requirement yeah, for most people. The That's what I'm talking about. Didn't do any backward bending, none of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, and you're going to go on to make the but, it makes no difference. Yeah. That's it's, what's fascinating. So I've had big periods off, and I think anyone who, and I was really, really into the physical stuff, especially mm. when I met you, so... Overly into, if I may say. Far too much, yeah. Can I just flesh out for others yeah. that don't know your personal history what that means? Overly into to the point of um, really running yourself down from a fatigue point of view, mm-hmm. running yourself down from an energy point of view by using those resources too much. Yeah, I completely fucked my systems up doing that. <coughs> but enjoyed what a bless- I enjoyed it while I was doing it. What a blessing it was to you, though. That was perfect. It couldn't have been any better way to do it than completely break myself in that way. No matter how weird that sounds. Yeah. It is essential. It was very distressing at the time, but it was allowed me the extra space to look into this other stuff because it was all I could do. <laughs> kind of funny looking at things. How now, beautiful is that, really? Now it's 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 interesting. There's no. It was a very strong desire to do the training before. Like it was my whole life was that. Um, it's what I breathe, etc. <clears throat> but then. I still I can understand and empathise very strongly with people who do that. And when you're a bit younger, it's it was a good experience. If you could probably dial it back so you don't run yourself into the ground, it would be wise. But if you do, then it's also... Can I interrupt, though, and just say that I've given that advice to hundreds of young athletes. Mm-hmm. And another, another thing that um, Leah spoke about often is capacity to hear. Yeah, you have to do it. I have to learn that one. I said it, but I, I can honestly <laughs> say that under... There wasn't a single example in that group that actually took that advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was that. <clears throat> and then integrating these other types of trainings, so the yoga nidra you've mentioned. Hmm. I'm actually putting these two through a challenge of sorts, well, a how, month of that and tracking certain parameters. For our, for our audience, how important, where would you rate yoga nidra and for those that are not familiar with that expression let's just talk about some lying relaxation practice where you're directing your awareness around the body and trying to stay awake as you do the practice rather than falling asleep which is the normal mm-hmm. habitual response how important is that practice do you think very important essential for some very very important for others where would you for which for what type of person is it more important, do you think? Obviously, people who have problems relaxing yeah. or sleeping. Or people like me who were habitually extremely tense. Yep, or high attention, uh, distracted by sound, as in they get irritated by noise and their mental response that, that's, to that's sound. Good. Yeah, um, definitely. Totally cleared up my sleeping Same here. problem. I can, there's no dilemma now, easily asleep within a minute or so or less, whereas before, in my teenage years, somewhere between 30 minutes and 3 hours per night, yeah. just lying there, 
Yeah. Where you need to go to sleep and waking up 15 times a night on the worst days. Sure. So that's bad sleep. Now, yeah. Very, very deep, very peaceful, can do it wherever I want. We, we <coughs> picking up on something you said a second ago about um, being able to sleep in noisy environments. You didn't exactly say it that way, but not being disturbed by sounds at night time. Yeah. Um, we have a specific practice, and I think it's actually on the forums, and it's a free download where I think I'm, from memory, I'm ringing a bell, this is my recollection of it anyway, and in the middle of the lying practice it's let this sound pass through you without leaving a trace or something like that. And I've personally found that practice immensely helpful. Yeah, me too. Because when my awareness recognises a sound in the external environment, the body doesn't wake up. That, and that was, I mean, that used to happen to me all the time, especially I travel a lot, as you know, and I'd be sleeping in different beds, different oral environment every night. That's an absolutely zero kind of problem mm. now. So on a practical, I mean, I know we say the word mundane from time to time, and it sounds a bit negative, but, but it, it's an important perspective, I think. On the mundane perspective, being able to sleep through the night is, from a health point of view, extremely important. Just that. Let me interject an idea here. The traditional Buddhist perspective on meditation is that there are four postures to meditation. Walking, standing, lying and sitting. Now what's fascinating to me is that really in the West sitting practice is privileged above these three other forms and I'm going to ask you why do you think that is? Because it's easier to enhance awareness in that position for some reason, at least in my experience. And I've tried the other ones as well. Mm-hmm. They seem to have their own flavors. Well, in my case, it was actually the lying experience that had the most profound effect on me. And so really, I think this points to what you were talking about before. The And this, this goes for any kind of practice, so we're not talking now about meditation practices, any physical practices, any mental practices for that matter, mm-hmm. it's the starting set that you bring that will determine which at that point, and of course this is a moving feast, it will change. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sitting much more now than I did before 10 years ago, much more. I, my The main focus in my practice 10, 15 years ago was lying practice, because that's absolutely what my body needed. Mm-hmm. But that bore fruit. So now... And also, there's a one more perspective, and that is that on some accounts, the four postures of meditation exhaust all the positions the body can be put into. Mm-hmm. So the conclusion from that is, well, meditation or awareness practices, let's just call it awareness practices because meditation has so much there is so much that goes along with the uh, with the ideas and the concepts of meditation, and there's so many different kinds of meditation too. But if we're talking about, as you were a little while ago, about awareness as being your most important practice, then there's nowhere where awareness can't be awakened or deepened. No activity, no position in daily life, no nothing. It's the practice. Which, of course, is your point. Mm-hmm. And that's why I use awareness, because you don't bring along all the other... Stuff. Terminological debating, which is this is an important thing. point, Dave. I think you need would it would be helpful to write something on this. 
That's at some stage I will. Okay. Um, the reason I use sitting primarily is because it transfers to daily life far more potently for me than mm -hmm. the others. The body uh, lying relaxation is good for relaxation mm -hmm. and for sleep, but in terms of the ability and the clarity of awareness, it was second fiddle for me. So that is why the sitting, because it works. And I'm interested in things that work across all the realms, not particularly wedded to any system, especially not wedded to talking about it endlessly. I want it to work. And the sitting works. And the sitting goes in far more deeply to my moving practice, strangely enough. So yes, you can use movement, but I've found, amusingly to some degree, people who normally say I use movement as my meditation or whatever they use is... I've seen it work, but it in not my that it, well. In my some people very well. In my experience, it's extremely rare to see someone who's acquired that state of being aware of being aware, which is mm -hmm. what we're talking about. Not just I mean, aware. Everyone's aware. Yeah, that's what we're talking. That's about. what we're talking about. We're, which we might describe. And again, this is not the terminology is. It's it's littered with pitfalls it's extremely difficult to talk about these things in any kind of meaningful way and really I know it's going to sound silly possibly but really we'd just be sitting here silently if we were <laughs> I can't even say it <laughs> I'll, I'll stop but yes if we're trying what we're talk talking about is how to move from the ordinary state of awareness to a deeper state of awareness and, and in my experience anyway and certainly from what you're saying in your experience deliberate practice with that as the goal is absolutely essential it is not going to happen just because you're doing movement practice in my opinion and I want to just comment on something um, the great Iyengar said once he said there are plenty of gymnasts and dancers who can do all the poses of yoga but they don't display the kind of equanimity that yoga is designed yeah. to bring to the, the being. And that's really an important thing because, at least in my experience, watching and feeling people as they work, half the time people are doing movement practice, the movement itself is a distraction yeah, and from being is, aware. It's when you're confusing things. If you're do, doing movement practice for getting better at movement, it's a totally different thing. Mm. It's actually been exceptionally useful seeing the increase in movement and stretching and all these things for me because it's made it very clear that it's actually awareness that I'm after and mm. it's actually awareness that's done the biggest changes in me, not the movement. Well, same here. I mean, that's why when people write on the forums, they want to be able to do this. One guy wrote and he said he wanted to be able to stand on one leg and hold his other leg up alongside his head. He wanted that kind of level of flexibility. So I'm down. I can't remember the name of that. Nothing wrong with that. I thought, no, nothing wrong with that, but, and then I, but I asked myself, do I have an interest in that level of flexibility? And the answer is absolutely no. Yeah, this is the same for me. If I can, I'll continue doing those things because I like having the body in good condition, mm. probably even to a higher degree than most people because I do find it enjoyable at some level, but mm. the crux is really in this mm. other stuff mm. for me and what it does and... <clears throat> combination of them all is very interesting to me it's the it's the making your <coughs> daily life in terms of the awareness of awareness the sensations and the movements 
working with that, that's what I find personally very interesting. The effects. It. it, it very remarkable. If I can say, it's it's way more important than interesting. Yeah. That's so, not that's not yeah. meant in any way critically. But let me give you a practical yes. example. The house that I'm staying in here, Ken and Cherie's place, thank you Ken and Cherie, has a handmade set of stairs down from the first floor, which if you're not paying attention are treacherous. And I remember the first time I visited this house, and it would be I guess 15 years ago now, a couple of times I nearly fell down those stairs. Now I mean I wasn't completely a physical klutz 15 years ago, that's not the point. I was so quickly distracted from being fully present in my body in those days compared to now. I realized today, walking down the stairs in the dark, I was feeling each step with complete security in in my confidence that I was actually balanced on each foot as it landed on each step. That was an amazing thing to feel. And so if one is attempting to calibrate one's awareness or or aware of being aware state of awareness if you look very closely at what's happening in your mind while you're doing all the ordinary things that we do you'll see that attention is distracted the Tibetans say 60 times a second and I'm that sounds about right to me (laughs) and so if you're coming down a dangerous set of stairs like these ones you know a quarter of a second is more than enough time accidents happen Exactly, and so that's such a good thing that you just said then. There are very few accidents, genuine accidents. Very, very few. Very, very few. Every accident that I've had, and I know you've had plenty of accidents, when I go back and look at it, it is always because my attention was distracted by something, and not something in the outside environment. It's always something going on up here, every time. People don't want to say it's my fault. Oh, it's, it's been my fault every time. It's been my fault every time as well. And to be, to be clear about that, in my view, is just immensely empowering because, and this is what I wrote in response to Olga's lovely post on the forums about going barefoot for the first time in her life in Hong Kong. Well, that was just such a beautiful course. series of posts. And, and Craig weighed in too. Um, people are always saying, oh, you're walking around in bare feet, aren't you worried about needles? Um, and Craig said it perfectly. He said, well, I, the only time I've ever seen a needle is lying down, flat. I mean, needles don't normally stick up. And he said, this is great, he said if I was wearing five fingers and stepped on a needle that was sticking up, I'd, I'd get stabbed anyway, wouldn't I? Yeah, and the answer is yes, of course. But this is the thing I wanted to mention. Unlike my hands, which are quite scarred and dinged up from all sorts of things, uh, there are no marks on my feet at all. Apart from that one time I pulled that toenail right off when we were doing jumping practice, which that was quite painful. Um, when you walk around this environment in bare feet, and we're talking about urban environments, country environments where I live or around a house like this, because the opportunity to hurt yourself is manifestly present in every moment, it actually makes the, you, your system devotes a quantum of energy to staying aware about what's actually happening around your feet. And mm-hmm. the crazy thing is, I never hurt my feet, ever. Mm-hmm. Don't you find that fascinating? Yep. So the environments in, are not dangerous enough. Hmm? The environment's not the environment's dangerous, not dangerous enough. enough. Well, let's not get... Let's not, well, I, we can just mention one thing. All of our gymnastics equipment um, came from schools who've decided that ladder bars and all those other kinds of things that every school and every gym going back 100 years had without fail... They're too dangerous for children to play on. Mm-hmm. How insane is that? Very. 
Hmm. Interesting topics, as always. I think for me, like I said a few moments ago about the very interesting watching everyone get into movements of all types. <coughs> it was a, the thing Craig and I talked about recently in the other interview I did with him is what I've actually got that's being transformative is what we're tentatively putting under the word re-enchantment. Um, if, can I interrupt there and just say it's an absolutely fabulous uh, name and I want to just add something and make a reference to a book and perhaps like we can put these books up at the end Yes. but something that I read recently and I don't know whether it was you recommended it or someone else, the um, Continuum Concept I gave it to you man that was you, you sorry, <laughs> forgive me, forgive me um, come back next year come back next year, we'll, te- we'll tell that joke later the description of what people look like and feel like energetically and how they behave because because it's what people do not what they talk about that's the critical thing how they actually behave what they how they act exactly the the watching people who are not separated from their environment was for me a massive slap in the face um, as from a conceptual perspective if you're not separated from your environment then all the the alleged ills of modern Western life, completely unimportant. And so the biggest thing, and this is why I think the word re-enchantment is such an important word, and I think you, you've really chosen, the, or at least in my experience, the best possible word to encapsulate what it is you're trying to do. If one is, well, I would say if you are present, then and we have spoken about this, I realise I'm being very elliptical here, but it's actually very difficult to talk about this stuff. I've never been bored. And I mentioned that to you once, and I remember you spoke about a time when you were... I have been bored enough for both of us. You've been bored enough for both of us. And when I first heard you say that, because I I can't remember my childhood at all, because that was just a different life. And so I, I can't remember, but I did ask my mother, I did make the point of asking my mother, I said, was I ever bored as a child? And she said, no. You used to just sit there and observe people. Well, that's interesting. And she said, then when you learnt to read, and my mother taught me how to read and write before I went to school, as you know, mm. she said, you were inseparable from a book from that point on. Of course, that structured the brain in yet another way, and I definitely lived in my head way too much for a substantial fraction of my adult life. And this, I think, is the reason why the line practice for me was so helpful, because it literally put me back in my physical body and this is worth mentioning at this point the physical body exists only in the present if you are feeling your physical body you're present the body cannot project itself into the future can't project itself into the past it's only now so for me this is an incredibly helpful thing but this is the thing that I want to want to say in relation to re-enchantment when you are present the idea of boredom is just so absurd because the sheer sensation of being alive, the sheer brilliance and beauty of all the things around us at all times, just doing nothing anywhere you are, is compelling. I mean, it's, it's silly to say it is. Comp- you know what I'm trying to say. I hope you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> anyway, so that's. That's re-enchantment. Re-enchantment is absolutely, I just wish you 
That's the problem. It's the fantastic. Problem yeah, because people are disenchanted. The They're problem is disenchantment. Bored, um, critical, unhappy. All of those yeah. things are disenchantment. Especially cynical. Yeah. Well, I know. Well, that was, that, that was, one disappears. And that, that's a that was me, test, actually. That was me for a very long time, yeah. as you know. You cannot be enchanted and cynical. No. There's the truth right there. Now you two, our audience, are there any burning questions or... And how long have we been talking for? I've got no idea. Must be about an hour. Feels like about an hour. So do you have any... This is your opportunity. Do you want to ask what kind of toothpaste Dave uses? This is the right time to do it. No? Yes? Well, in that case... Thank you, sir. Thank you. We're going to share this. With, share this with this group. Mm-hmm. There is a group. I don't know whether it's American Indians or whether, or whether it's one of these groups uh, in the Amazon Delta area that um, the continuum concept person was writing about. But there is a toast. But it's not just a toast. It's a, it's a, a moment of presence in ordinary life. I see you. It's from Avatar, baby. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> what was that? It's from the James Cameron movie Avatar. It's not, is it? Yeah, but he probably got it for Well, yeah. I don't care where it comes from. Wherever the truth comes from, like it's fine it. by it's me. Cool. I see you. <laughs> that will do. Mm. Okay. Should we cut? We shall. Cut. Turn all the cameras off, please.